Heavenly Father, we thank you for what your word says about you and and for what it says about Jesus Christ, that unspeakable gift, that mystery of mysteries. Lord, help us to just have a glimpse tonight of what a great and wonderful thing it is that Christ died for us and what a great and wonderful person Christ is. We pray for your blessing upon us as we look into your word. We pray, Lord, for wisdom and understanding from above to help us understand your word. We ask this in your name. Amen. Pardon me. Now, last week we looked at Colossians 1 and 15 to 23, the verses, and it's one of the most Christological passages in the whole of the Bible. It was packed full, if you remember, with information about the Son of God. It was literally all about Christ. And you might uh, accuse the Apostle Paul of being a little bit one-tracked. I mean, there's a lot of other stuff, isn't there? There's a lot of other stuff involved in Christianity apart from Jesus. I mean, what about uh, spiritual enlightenment or knowledge, higher knowledge? What about personal fulfillment? But Paul's message in those verses was that actually you don't need anything else or anyone else because Christ is supreme. He is the be-all and end-all. The creator, the sustainer of all things, the head, the life source of the church, the author of our salvation. So it's in him, in him alone, that our hope is found. He is all sufficient. Amen. But I guess the question remains, doesn't it? If Christ is all sufficient, so what? If that's no more than just a Christian cliche, then we're not really that much better off, are we? Well, Paul's attitude to this message of Christ alone was anything but, so what? Because he calls his message the gospel, he calls it the good news. And in the final verse that we looked at last week, verse 23, Paul says that he is a servant of that gospel message. So he wasn't an academic in an ivory tower Paul wasn't a a mildly interested observer. This was a man who was massively invested in what he was preaching. Even as he was writing this letter, Paul was actually sitting in a prison cell. He was in chains. That was how much he was invested in the message. This knowledge of Christ alone, it absolutely consumed Paul. His life, his whole life was given over to this this gospel message. So I think it's worth keeping that in mind at the very beginning as we look into the rest of chapter 1. These these words in Colossians 1 and 2, they're not the musings of a, a crusty theologian. They are the personal experiences of a missionary and a pastor on the front line who has given his whole life over to that message. And underpinning it all is, of course, Christ, the be all and the end all the one and only. Well, in our passage tonight, Paul shares with us his personal experience of ministering this gospel message. And we learn two things. First of all, the message that Paul preached, the gospel is one of suffering. It's God's mystery revealed, and it's one of hope. And then secondly, Paul's goal, maturity in Christ, firmness of faith, and encouragement and unity in love. So turn with me back to Colossians chapter 1 
And we start off by looking at Paul's message. That the gospel, first of all, is one of suffering. Paul tells us a little bit more about this gospel message. It's not a philosophy. It's not a trendy New Age experience. In fact, it's very hard work. If you look down the passage, verse 29 says, To this end I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. And then we've got verse 1 of chapter 2. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you. So this is a hard slog. This is hard graft. It's not for the faint-hearted. But of course, Paul's message is far more than just that. Paul's message is no less than the gospel being a gospel of suffering. And not just general suffering, such as tiredness um, or hard labour. But We're talking about suffering for the sake of Christ. And in verse 24, Paul says this, that I rejoice in what I'm suffering for you. And I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking in regards to Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, which is the church. And this isn't incidental suffering along the way, just the product of uh, getting in the way of people who don't like Christ. This is an integral part of being a Christian. Because Paul says here that something is still lacking in regard to Christ's afflictions. Now this is a a tricky verse, but Paul certainly doesn't mean that Christ's work of atonement, his sacrifice for us, somehow wasn't quite enough. Because Christ's suffering on the cross was indeed enough. It was sufficient for our redemption. Christ doesn't need to suffer anymore. Now, of course, as far as Christ's enemies were concerned, well, Christ's sufferings on the cross will never be enough. And so with Christ physically absent from us, we, as God's people, in his absence, are effectively in the line of fire. This is what Jesus himself said in John 15. If the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. So to suffer for Christ's sake is, if you like, it's a badge of honour. It marks you and me out as being Christ's followers. But there is something else at play here, because behind all the opposition of the world is the hand of the sovereign God. Now in Revelation 6, the Apostle John sees a vision of the martyrs, people who were killed simply for being believers. And in the vision, these martyrs ask the Lord, how long is this going to go on for? When are you going to avenge the blood of your followers? And the answer is, well, not yet. Not until the number of his fellow servants and brothers who were to be killed was completed. Until Christ returns in power and glory and judges the whole world, there is going to be an enmity between the church and the world. Between the world and the followers of Christ. And it is called the tribulation. And God, in his sovereign will for his own purposes 
has determined that we, you and me, as followers of Christ, will in some way share in Christ's sufferings. And until that suffering is complete, Christ isn't going to return. That's what Paul says is still lacking. The totality of the suffering of the church. Now I hope this doesn't depress you, but it's the truth. If you're wholeheartedly following Christ, and you're willing to stand up for Christ, then suffering is inevitable in some shape or form. Remember, in his lifetime, Christ was almost constantly opposed, scorned, rejected. And if it wasn't for God's plan, he would have been killed long before he even got to the cross. And of course, with Christ physically absent now, who do the enemies of Christ have in their sights? Us, the church. If you like, we stand in his stead. And so we will suffer. And God has decreed in his purposes that we will suffer for his sake until Christ returns. But God does know and God does care. And the, the great thing about that passage in Revelation is that one day God will judge. And our suffering, big or small, is important to him. Now, whether or not you feel depressed about that, Paul isn't depressed. In fact, he rejoices in it. Now, he's not being a sadomasochist. He's not deliberately looking for trouble. Can't wait for a bit of suffering today, Lord. Now, as Christians, we are called to live peaceable lives. It's not about looking for ways in which we can suffer. But for Paul, suffering simply because he was following Christ was an amazing thing. As I said, it's a, a badge of honour. It's a sign that we've been counted worthy to follow in Christ's footsteps. And Paul goes even further than that. Look again at verse 24. I fill up in my flesh what is still lacking. Paul was a specially commissioned apostle. He was a messenger of Christ. He was a prominent figure. He was a leader in the early church. So by Paul's own acceptance of suffering, his joyful acceptance of suffering, his endurance during hostility and trial, he was a very visible and a valuable example to the church. He was benefiting them. He was filling up what was lacking. He was contributing his share of the suffering of Christ's church. And these words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 4, I think maybe shed some more light on Paul's attitude here. Have a listen to this. We always carry around in our body the death of Jesus, so that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body. For we who are alive are always being given over to death for Jesus' sake, so that his life may also be revealed in our mortal body. So then death is at work in us, but life is at work in you. Imagine that for each one of us, Christ's life revealed in our mortal bodies. It would be an incredible thing, wouldn't it? Now, just because Paul suffered joyfully certainly didn't mean that it was easy for him, because it wasn't. We'll be finding this out as we look through Acts in the mornings, because over 20, 30 years of ministry, Paul was 
beaten, flogged, stoned, shipwrecked, imprisoned, and probably a lot more that I haven't thought of. And as he was writing to the Colossians, he was in chains, he was in prison. And so, humanly speaking, Paul was at the end of his tether. He was a broken man. This, remember as well, was a man who had a thorn in the flesh. Whatever that was, it may well have been a physical health issue that wore him down year on year. It's no wonder that Paul describes the gospel in terms of struggling and contending and suffering. And yet Paul wasn't superhuman. Yes, he was a great apostle, but he was a man. And even as he strived and struggled and contended for the gospel message, he was never operating in his own strength. Verse 29 says this, I labour struggling with all his energy. That's what kept him going all the way through. Paul didn't just preach in Christ alone, he practised it too. All his strength was from Christ alone. He didn't meditate, do his yoga in the morning. Well, he might have done. But Paul relied on Christ. And throughout this struggle, this contending, Paul remembered where he'd come from. Once upon a time, he'd been a violent, he'd been an angry man who hunted down Christians. But then, one amazing day, the risen Christ appeared to him as he was angrily riding off towards Damascus, and his life was completely turned around, it was transformed. And Paul refers to this moment in verse 25, when he talks about the commission God gave me to present the word of God in all its fullness. It wasn't a career choice, it wasn't a lifestyle choice. To be honest, back in the first century, no one in their right mind would have decided to preach Christ as a career choice because you were liable to lose your life. But as far as Paul was concerned, this was a personal and a formal commission from the risen Christ to him. Preach to the Gentiles. And that commissioning from God, from the risen Christ, was far bigger, far more real to him than any amount of pain, any amount of suffering. But secondly, second distinctive of Paul's message, that the gospel is nothing less than God's mystery revealed. Now, in in the first century, if you were talking about a, a mystery, you were probably thinking about some secret teaching, some special rite or, or ceremony, something religious that was hidden from the ordinary people. It was only revealed to a small number of privileged human beings. These were the sort of mysteries that the Colossian false teachers were into. I guess in the same way, exactly what goes on in Freemason meetings today. It's a complete mystery to me. I don't know if it is to you. Certainly the specifics of Freemason belief and practice are hidden from most of us on the outside. It's a bit of a mystery. Well, Paul refers to a mystery. The mystery of the word of God in all its fullness. But there's a big difference between the world's idea of a mysterious secret knowledge and a mystery and this one. Because this wasn't something for the privileged few, the elite. In fact, but for God, it wouldn't be for anyone, rich or poor, big or small. 
Because in verse 26, Paul says it's been kept hidden for ages and generations. All through the Old Testament. So this is a divine mystery that no human being could lay claim to, that no clever person could attain just by dint of being powerful or clever or influential. And yet, wonderfully, this is a mystery revealed to everyone. No special privileges, no need for court injunctions or press embargoes, because God has made a full disclosure. Verse 26 says that this mystery is now disclosed to the saints, to us. The mystery is the word of God in all its fullness, which is is nothing less than Jesus Christ, the eternal word. And yet the God-man. In 1 Peter, we're told that this is something that the Old Testament prophets from hundreds of years before spoke of. And yet these prophets, godly men though they were, they were never told exactly when these things were going to happen. Their knowledge was limited. Peter himself says that they searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing. That is the mystery that has now been revealed. And note, it's been revealed in all its fullness. A very provocative word. The Colossian false teachers were trying to urge the congregation to seek spiritual fullness, whatever that is. To seek completion, to seek fulfilment in extra things other than Christ. But Paul says, you just don't need to. You simply don't need to. You have the fullness of Christ. It is all sufficient. And so you are privileged people. Even the greatest of the Old Testament prophets didn't know the mystery that you know. And tonight, if you're a Christian here, you too can lay claim to those same privileges. Verse 27 says, to them or to the church, including us, God has chosen to make known among the Gentiles the glorious riches of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Why is it a mystery? Well, as we've said, it's something that but for God, we wouldn't have any comprehension of. Secondly, I think it's a total mystery that after thousands of years of God dealing with just one people, with Israel, he's now dealing with everyone. Gentiles, men and women from Colossae, from Laodicea, which is mentioned here, Blockswich, Pelsall, Warsaw, even Wolverhampton. But I think the biggest mystery isn't the social and the racial geographical makeup of the church. It's far more. The mystery, I think, is quite simply our status as born-again, transformed human beings. In Romans 5, Paul says that through Christ... We have gained access by faith into this grace in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. That's the real mystery, the truth which God has now revealed. That you and I can be saved at all. That spiritually dead people living in darkness, cut adrift from God, like you and me, can respond in faith and can be saved. 
It's no wonder that it's described in verse 27 as glorious riches. So Christians are unbelievably privileged people. You're better off than the the richest billionaire. There's no need for us to seek out fulfilment and treasure in the here and now. Why? Well, this leads us on very neatly to the third distinctive of Paul's message, that the gospel is one of hope. Christ in you, the hope of glory. Now, hope is a very powerful thing, isn't it? As one person once said, when the world gives up, hope whispers, try it one more time. It's a bit cheesy. But you see, during tough times, it's often the hope of times better that keeps people going. And yet, of course, as we know, hopes can be cruelly dashed, can't they? They can deceive us because they're not always founded on reality. Things will get better. Well, actually, no. Sometimes better times are not around the corner. And yet Paul gives us a sure hope that is founded on the firmest of realities. An age-old mystery, a divine truth has been revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. And now sinful Gentiles from under every nation in the sun can gain access by faith into the presence of Christ. Paul says to the Colossians, Christ is in you. He's in even you. He's in even me. And he means both in them as a community, he's in us as a church body, and he's also in us as individuals. Both apply. So Christ isn't just the life source, as we saw last week, the head of the body. He's also in you and me. Each of us has the life of the risen Christ in us. And that's what gives us this firm and a certain basis for our hope. And what is our hope? Well, what will happen when we uh, live our lives as people with Christ dwelling in us, but then we die as everybody does? Well, glory. That's what's going to happen when we die. A glorious future in heaven with Christ forever. So, Christians may be a suffering people, we may be a, a malign people, but in a sense, we're people for whom the pressure is off. So we don't have to sweat every last ounce of blood striving to reach the top at work for our fulfilment. We don't have to live through the achievements of our children. We don't have to go out every weekend seeking to fill our empty lives with fun and entertainment. We don't have to desperately try and fulfill our earthly dreams. We don't have to seek out spiritual, extra spiritual knowledge or fulfilment. We don't have to ask the meaning of life. No, we already have it. We already have meaning and purpose and hope. We have a certain hope of glory when we die in Christ. I'm sure this is what sustained Paul when he was suffering for the sake of the gospel, when he was being beaten and when he was stuck in prison. Because for him, the end was in sight and it was just as real as the here and now. That's the heart of Paul's gospel message. And I think Paul can certainly teach us a lot about how much more we should value this message. But also, I think Paul has a lot to teach us about the reason for preaching the message. 
Paul is preaching to the converted. He's preaching to the Colossians and other Christians in Laodicea and beyond. So you could say, well, he didn't really need to teach them this. They already know it. But in verse 28, Paul says that he admonishes and teaches everyone with all wisdom. Now, to admonish is to, is to warn, to warn against false teaching or false practice. And to teach is maybe more positive. It's to build up, to encourage. And Paul does both, and he does it indiscriminately to every follower of Christ who he meets or who he has dealings with. And he doesn't do it aimlessly. He doesn't assume that they already know it, so, you know, you're just preaching to the converted. Paul had a specific threefold goal. First of all, maturity in Christ. Look again at verse 28. Paul says, we proclaim him, admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we present everyone perfect in Christ. So if we imagine Paul sitting in his one-to-one meeting at the start of the year with his boss, Christ, well, this was his first primary objective. Paul, this year, in fact, every year, Paul, I want you to proclaim me so that I can be presented with the people who are perfect in me. So it's a slightly difficult task. In fact, you might say it's an impossible task. Because as we all know, sadly, perfection is not possible in this life. And if it is, speak to me afterwards. I'd like to know how. But I think um, a better translation of the word perfect is mature or blameless or maybe even fully grown because the Christian life isn't static. The Christian life is one of continual growth, continual development. So if you've been a Christian for 40 years, you should know Christ better and have a deeper trust and faith in him than you did 40 years ago because you should be in a constant state of growth and development. You're not going to hit perfection in this life, far from it, but you'll become more perfect. So ask yourself, is that something that you strive for? Or are you content with what you've got? Now, of course, in one sense, even the most immature of Christians has got the greatest treasure of all. New life in Christ, a hope of heaven. But that shouldn't be a block to Christian growth. In fact, it should be an aid to Christian growth. Christ saved us so that he could build a relationship with us so he could get to know us better and better and better. Sin, of course, is a failure to that. It blocks it. So every day we should be striving against sin and striving for growth and maturity. I think that's another reason why Paul uses these uh, phrases so much about contending strenuously and striving because not just the hostility outside, but all that hostility within, in his old nature, that's what makes it such hard work, seeking to grow as a child of God's. We all need to strive, we all need to contend, we all need to labour hard so that one day we can be presented perfect. But having said all that, I do think that Paul is referring here to a reality beyond this life. I think it's judgment day at the end of time that Paul has in mind. If you look back into verse 22, I covered this one last week, where Paul says we'll be presented holy in the sight of God, without blemish and free of accusation. He's talking about God's judgment seat, and it's the same scene here in verse 28. In eternity, we will be perfect. And Paul's goal is 
that we will all safely reach eternity where we will be that perfect people. It's to that end that Paul is labouring, struggling with all his energy and all the energy that Christ gives him. It's the same labour and struggle that Paul wants us to be involved in as well. Don't misunderstand me. Salvation belongs to the Lord. It's It's an act of God's. But it's our responsibility as God's people, as individuals and as a church, to persevere, to struggle, to strive, so that one day we will be mature, fully grown at the final judgment. And of course, all this, I guess, implies that there is a very big threat to us persevering and striving and growing. Being presented mature before God at the final judgment will be put at risk by the deceptive power of what Paul calls fine-sounding arguments. This leads us on to another goal of Paul's, firmness of faith, so that we won't be deceived. And this is where the admonishing part of Paul's proclamation comes in, the warnings. Verse 4 says, I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments. We could say, specious arguments that sound reasonable and plausible, but they're hollow, they're false, they're a load of rubbish. Another translation is beguiling speech. It sounds great, the words drip with honey, but they're sour words and they're falsehoods. Because you see, the whole background to this letter, as we saw a couple of weeks ago, is false teaching. Knowledge particularly spiritual knowledge, it was all the rage for these false teachers. They longed for knowledge that would set them apart from ordinary folk over in the corner. And Paul says to the Colossians, look, I can see that these false teachers are impressing you. They're very eloquent, I can see that. But really, all they're doing is deceiving you. You really don't need anything else besides Christ. There's no hidden knowledge that you need to discover. There's no special status that you can attain to. You don't need to try and worship angels or focus on other spiritual forces or demons. None of that stuff can give you anything of lasting value or lasting worth. At best, it's a dangerous distraction. At worst, it can deceive you. And besides, it's so unnecessary because in verse 3, Paul says... He's preaching so that these Christians can know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Christians offered the greatest knowledge in the world. Why on earth would we need anything else? Not that this is knowledge for the sake of knowledge. For a start, it's a personal knowledge. Christ hasn't just revealed the mystery of God as the lead item on the 10 o'clock news something for us to be interested in in a very detached sort of way. No, this is deeply personal for Paul's readers and for all of us here. If we're Christians, we've become one with Christ. And in doing so, we can experience the blessings of knowing God. As Paul says in 2 Corinthians, it was quoted in our uh, third hymn, for no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. It's personal knowledge. And secondly, it's not isolated knowledge, because it's coupled with wisdom. The second of these two treasures that go hand in hand. 
By wisdom, Paul simply means living wisely. Living wisely in God's world. Understanding things from God's perspective. So, personal, saving knowledge of Christ and God-given wisdom to live in the light of that. That is the greatest treasure on earth. It is the greatest treasure anyone could ever have at their fingertips. And we have it, and it is all centred in, and it's all through Jesus Christ. But thirdly and finally, there is a context to all this knowledge. Look at verse 2. This is Paul's final goal in his preaching, that my purpose is that they, the Christians in Colossae and Laodicea, and by extension us, may be encouraged in heart and united in love. As you've probably gathered, this uh, pursuit of higher knowledge, spiritual elevation, well, it was very selfish. What do you think was driving these false teachers? Well, quite simply, they wanted to be better than everyone else. They wanted to be superior to everyone else. It was an individualistic, selfish pursuit. So that when they put their head on the pillow at night, they could think, I'm better. I know more. But Paul says to his readers here, look, even though you've got access to the the greatest mystery in the world, the mystery of Christ, and you've got access to all this knowledge and wisdom in Christ, you ought to be different than those false teachers. Knowing Christ isn't simply um, knowledge as an end in itself. You can only really know Christ within a community that is united in love. Love is both the cause of unity and it's also the, the atmosphere within which unity can breed and flourish. Love means not regarding your own needs and your own opinions as more important than other people's. Love is serving others practically, emotionally, spiritually. Love is wanting to see other people grow in Christ. Love is nothing less than imitating Christ, the one who gave us our great knowledge in the first place. Love is living wisely in God's world. In our church membership statement this morning, we talked about the love we need to have for each other. And it's vital. And Paul says it's vital here. And he also wants the church to be encouraged in heart. When he says heart, he simply means the whole person. Everything about them their character, the whole core and centre of them as a person, their heart. It's the heart that needs to be protected when false teachers are trying to discourage and deceive. We know, don't we, already that Paul um, wants to protect the hearts of the Colossian believers. He wants them to be presented safely to Christ. And so it's his goal to strengthen and encourage those hearts along the journey. One commentator who I read said it like this. The heart of all true pastoral activity is to be an instrument in God's hand to bring the hearts of those entrusted to one's care to the heart of Christ. Now I can't drag you kicking and screaming into the kingdom of God and you can't do the same to me. God saves individuals. He doesn't save groups of people in one But that doesn't mean that we don't have a responsibility to each other. Paul was as unselfish a man as you were ever likely to see. 
He considered himself responsible for the spiritual well-being of these people, even though, I should add, he'd never visited them. He didn't plant the Colossian church. He'd never even been there. He says in verse 2 about the fact that he hadn't met some of these people. And yet, Paul says in verse 5, Though I'm absent from you in my body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how orderly you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So he wasn't physically present there with them, but spiritually he considered that he was. He thought about them. He prayed for them. He wrote to them. And this isn't just, I'm, a, I'm there in spirit with you, brother. Because Paul considered himself to be one with these believers through the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, he and the Colossians were one people in Christ. So as far as Paul was concerned, yes, he was there with them. He was in the same boat as they were. Maybe just a different compartment of the boat. In short, Paul cared. He was a missionary who planted churches across the known world, but he was also a pastor with a heart for encouraging and growing a people who would one day be presented mature at the judgment seat. He called himself not just the servant of the gospel message, but you see it, I think, in verse 24, 25, that he was a servant of the church. The great apostle... Servant of the church. That's a lesson to those who preach, those who are in the ministry. It's a lesson to church leaders, to elders, to deacons. Are you and I motivated by love for the spiritual well-being of this flock of people? Is that what drives us? Or is the church just a platform for us to enjoy ourselves, exert control, show off our gifts, in fact, I should really extend this out to all of you here. This is a challenge for every one of us. Love and concern for each other and our spiritual walk is what really should drive every single one of us in how we deal with each other. We may not be tempted, I guess, to seek higher spiritual knowledge elsewhere. Maybe that isn't a temptation for us. But we certainly will be tempted, I think, to look away from the all-sufficient figure of Christ. To become self-sufficient. To put our hopes in worldly things, have worldly aspirations. To forget the hope of Christ in us. But Christ alone shouldn't just be the so what that I mentioned at the beginning. It certainly wasn't for the Apostle Paul. It was everything... Paul and I think what we see here tonight is that it should be everything to us let's pray Heavenly Father we do praise you and thank you for that mystery that has been revealed we were once in darkness but now we have light because of the person of Jesus Christ Heavenly Father we confess to you that sometimes this doesn't loom large in our lives. It's just a detached truth. It's something we believe but doesn't necessarily thrill us. Father, warm our hearts. Draw us back to you. Fill our hearts with a, a new, fresh excitement at this wonderful hope we have in Christ, a hope of future glory. Help us, Lord, to love each other.
to care for one another. Help us to be very concerned, Lord, for the spiritual growth of each other. And help us to preach this wonderful message that we can have a hope in Christ. Amen. Now, the last two weeks I've had a bit of an open goal in terms of choosing hymns uh, to finish with. So, um, this week, our final hymn is going to be, There is a Hope So Sure.